So we've got to dive in. It's been a full service, but I hope you're enjoying it. We still got communion to come. Um, and then there is this message that's sitting in my heart. You know, if we look at this uh, graph, there is a ridiculous amount of theology like condensed inside that little line. I, um, and I'm desperately trying, for the sake of clear teaching, to keep it very focused. And so if it sounds like I'm oversimplifying, I probably am. These things overlap all the time, okay? And life isn't reduced to nice, neat little diagrams. I know that. But if we're going to equip ourselves, we do need to think of a framework and a process. And so this is what that framework uh, and lifestyle, and notice it's called ongoing. Um, it keeps, it's, it's work. You just, you, you might resolve this, go all the way through to amazing restitution and reconciliation in a given setting. And you've got another setting that's biting you in the backside, like in that moment, and you're just at the start of a whole nother journey. So today I want to take us and look at number six on the right hand side. We're going to, we're going to zero in on reconciliation and in fact, on reconciliation confrontation. Turn to the person next to you and say, reconciliation confrontation. Now say to them, I love reconciliation. I finish the sentence confrontation. You complete the sentence. Tell them what, how you feel. It's a little bit of a weird space, isn't it? Like to put those two words together, a reconciliation confrontation, and it's really helpful, um, John, having your testimony, but we really do need to look at this. So Jesus takes us in Matthew chapter 18, and he says, if your brother or sister sins, and almost certainly the text, and there's all kinds of discussions around, but the, right, let me not go into it. Most likely, it, it, your brother or sister sins, and they've sinned against you. So this is a personal injury. This is not just that you've noticed that, you know, he was watering his lawn after 9 o'clock in the morning, and he lives in Cape Town. Um, some of you didn't even know that was illegal. But, um, <laughs> you know, this is, so it could be that you see they sinning, but most likely it is that they've actually sinned against you. Go and point out their fault. That's just lovely advice from Jesus. We wish it was just, you know. Then he says, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. Isn't that a beautiful thought? If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, tell everybody else what a goat he is, okay? <laughs> Take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's from Peter Deuteronomy 19 verse 15. And if they refuse to listen, even in the presence of witnesses, tell it to the church. Gosh. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, 
treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Question, how did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be, or the Greek is actually in the pre-perfect tense, which makes completely no sense to anyone, but it will have been bound. The significance is that you will discover that heaven has already set something in place when you reach the point of finding agreement on the earth. Heaven's already activated. It will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed or will be loosed on earth. Again, I tell you, amen, amen, is the, the, the Greek there. Jesus is literally saying the benediction before he says the sentence. Um, he's, he's, he's wanting to know how significant this is. Two of you find each other. Agree. And this is the context of you've been apart. Relationship's been pinched. And two of you can find each other again. You can agree on the earth. I'm asking for everything. It will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. I want to talk to you this morning about the goal of the gospel. We're talking about confronting uh, reconciliation. Like it's a, a reconciliation confrontation. We'd love it just to be a nice, happy, warm hug Jesus is very realistic about what this may take. You see, we've been looking up till now in, in the process at work that we have to do all the way through to establishing healthy boundaries is work we have to do before we're even in a good position to now engage with somebody else. Now, the danger with a lot of psychotherapy and that kind of thing is that we stop once we feel good. Like, I've forgiven you. No, I'm great. Oh, I'm, you know, that's past. Okay, we're over. I'm moving on. Or once I feel the relief of forgiveness, like, oh, I'm forgiven. Hallelujah. Okay, let's move on. And we don't think about the social, structural, even the political, uh, and the relational consequences of what's going on. Now, Jesus' kingdom is much bigger than me feeling better about myself. It really helps me feel better about myself, but too many of us stop there and we treat the kingdom and we treat the ministry of Jesus as if it's some kind of, you know, feel-good seminar instead of the redemption of the world. What is the goal of the gospel? We're going to look at that. Then the preparation for reconciling with someone who's sinned against you and then some do's and don'ts for the reconciliation confrontation. So let's talk about the goal of the gospel. The, the gospel itself defines your goal in a reconciliation confrontation. You see, the goal of a reconciliation confrontation is not to win the argument. It's to win your sister, to win the person, to win your brother, to win your husband, to win your wife. You want to you wanna win the person. Is how Jesus puts it. 
that this falls inside the broader description of the gospel itself. So it talks about how God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace, see that, through his blood shed on the cross. We're going to come back to this at communion. Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior or as evidence in your behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. By the way, that sounds like point number three on the left-hand side, where you, without blemish, and you've, you've repented, and you've literally received the grace of God, and you stand before God, and you completely, without blemish, and free from accusation. That's the wonder of the gospel. But what's the goal of the gospel? The goal of the gospel is recon God is reconciling all things to himself. Now, if I'm reconciled to God, and you are reconciled to God, what does that mean for us? It means we have to find each other because of what Jesus has done. You see, part of the way God will restore and, rec and remake all things, literally in, in Revelation 21, he says, I'm making everything new is through this dual process of putting wrongs to right as the expression of his justice, that's the restitution side, and making peace through his blood, which is his offering on the cross. And so you've got a world that where wrong is put right and justice is served and righteousness is celebrated and sins are forgiven. That's the vision of the kingdom of Jesus. Not one or the other. That we're all just going to get our sins forgiven. And then the world is going to stay a horrible place. God is going to fix the world. Now, how does he do this? By reconciling all things to himself. Now, the logic is that if all things are reconciled to him, then they automatically reconcile to each other. And in the big story of the kingdom, we, his people, already forgiven already connected to him are now carrying in the present the promise of the future and we begin to reconcile on the earth. We bring God's eternal future into the present. That's good. That's what we call eschatology. We are the forebears. We are the seeds of the second coming. There's a theology that kicks everything that's good and great into the distant future and says one day God will sort it out. But we've got to realize, we've got to realize that we are the light of the world. We carry this hope. We bring this reconciliation even now. Now the context of Matthew 18 is very important. Jesus starts by telling us that the kingdom belongs to children and that their guardian angels are actually the highest ranking angelic order that there is. Um, he says that the angels of the little kids have instant direct access to God. They see his face unhindered. Now think about that. We know, for example, 
from Daniel in the book of Revelation, that there are guardian angels that are assigned to nations, there are guardian angels that are assigned to churches, that kind of thing. And we know that these angels sometimes have to contend with serious interference, opposition, and traffic as they try and connect heaven and earth. So Daniel has to pray for three weeks. You know, he starts praying. Michael, the archangel, is sent straight away. It takes three weeks for him to reach one way, and then Daniel's got to pray him back and finish the assignment. Now, I, gosh, that, there's a whole bunch of stuff here. Of course, we're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms and all the rest of it, but, but the innocent element, that little child could be like the devil not allowed to interfere with that guardianship and safeguarding of a child for the sake of the kingdom of God. <laughs> the little child's angelic guardian has instant access. Now, why would this be? Why would this be? Now, this is just the context of Matthew chapter 18, and it is important. Why would this be? Because I think, and Jesus doesn't explicitly explain it here, but these children are both innocent and vulnerable. If you think back to last week, we are responsible for putting godly boundaries in place, healthy boundaries in place. Children do not have the power or the maturity to do that for themselves. So as we prayed earlier, we have to safeguard our children. We have to keep them from evil. Now then, there's some point in the wisdom of God where that responsibility, you know, is theirs. But there's such a huge alignment with the purposes of heaven. And then Jesus goes on to explain Woe to the person who then causes one of these little ones to sin. He breaches God's safeguarding purposes of heaven. And you use your influence and your power in a little one's life to lead them into sin or to cause them to sin or to sin against them. And if we don't, if we are the cause of sin in their lives, then we come to Jesus' millstone theology. So I was amazed. I went onto the internet and I found they took a photo in Nazareth of the local thing. It's quite an old photo, this about two and two thousand years old. Um, but, you know, there's the mill block underneath and then there's the millstone, which it took a lot of work and it took many men to lift that thing in place, and then they would harness an old horse or a donkey or something like that, and it would, it, would, it would walk around, and then the people in the village would bring their corn, and people knew more or less how much was much, and they threw their, their, their um, corn into the mill. The animal walked, and it crushed that, and then they kind of scooped, and you could just come, and it, as long as you weren't bringing, you know, stuff full of weevils, and that was one of the ways that they were able to keep their stuff. They didn't mill enormous amounts. They milled enough that they needed for a day or two. 
And so this was a regular feature. People knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Every village tried to have a mill block and a mill stove. And you would go there and get your flour sorted so that you could cook for the day or for the next few days. So that stone, if you compare it to the size of the donkey or the man standing in the background, can you imagine just wrapping that as a small little piece of jewelry around your neck? Um, Jesus is using exaggeration, you know, and a little bit of euphemism. You, you take that and go for a swim. Better do that than cause a little one to sin. Better do that than embed something in a child's life that will see them be a sinner later. We don't have a evangelicals, people like us, we like to emphasize human responsibility. But yes, Jesus is clearly pointing out that something beyond the power of the child was planted in their life by somebody else that doesn't just cause them maybe to sin as a child, but maybe causes them to embed repeated habits. And I've described my own story as to what this means to me. Am I making sense? So, so this context of why children are so precious, and now suddenly why sinning against someone is so massive. Don't be guilty for planting sin in someone else's life. But we've all done it. I, I can go to God and ask for forgiveness. I feel guilty, but what if I forgive my grandchildren? Like, he can forgive me, but do I just go then? Okay, that's great. I'm, I'm free now. What about what I did? In that child's life. What about I did in my brother's life, my sister's life? And Jesus then tells another story, which we know from Luke 15, and it's the parable of the lost sheep, and then the parable of the coin, and then the parable of the lost son. Well, Jesus, like a good teacher, used stories all over the place. I'm pretty convinced he used it in this setting right here. And he tells the story of the lost sheep. Don't just let them wander away. Who's he talking about? Those who are now sinning. Don't just let them wander away. Like, yes, there's the millstone problem. But can you not communicate with them? Can you not try and reach them? Don't just wash your hands. Don't just judge them. Don't give a sigh of resignation and say, oh, well, there goes another one. Go after them. Jesus is clear in this context. Someone caused them to sin. Don't leave them lost. Show them. Show them how to come home. Because the goal of the gospel is not just forgiveness. The goal is reconciliation. So John is in a process He's in a wise process because he understands the whole thing needs to happen. The gospel is doing its work, but it's not done. I can't say, oh, I'm forgiven. That's all right then. 
say, oh, I've forgiven them. That's all right then. The goal of the gospel of Christ is that all things are reconciled, that there is righteousness and shalom and peace and justice and reconciliation. This is why it's a lifestyle and not an event. As Cindy said in our small group when we were working on this, it's like layers of an onion. (laughs) We keep going deeper. And mercifully, as you open the onion, if it's a half-healthy onion, it gets cleaner and cleaner the more you work towards the center. The other thing is, the onion is one example. You just have to keep going, keep going, open up, open up, open up. You're never going to be done. It's also that you're going to enter new territory. Change the metaphor. You're actually going to be taking the gospel into new areas of your own life. And as you begin to understand, oh, this applies here, and this applies here, and I need this now, and I need this in this situation, you're going to walk this out more and more. But never confuse the goal of the gospel. Of course the gospel that we proclaim is repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But it's finish line. That's, that's its engine, not its destination. Forgiveness and repentance, that's literally the power that Jesus has made possible. But don't just run the engine in neutral. Take it to the finish line. Make sense? Now, this means that we have to, sorry. Forgiveness is therefore not just, okay, I got away with it. Or they get away with it. Not just. If I'm forgiven, it means I've got another chance. I have another opportunity. put right the debtor that I have to pay. Forgiveness is not justifying my sin. Paul makes that argument in Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 6. So now we need to get into this reconciliation confrontation. But there's some preparation. So if you think of the forgiveness lifestyle process, which is most needed to prepare you to confront someone who has sinned against you? Which of those steps is most needed? Trick question. To prepare you (laughs) to confront someone who sinned against you. All of it. That's right. Trick question. You actually can't skip steps. You can't allow the old spirit, for example, to stay in place when you're going to address an issue with them. You literally need to be carrying that new spirit. It's essential that we're going to win someone and not just the fight. We're going to win our brother, not just the, the case or the argument or whatever it is. Which means that if I go into this with a spirit, I'm willing to walk both sides myself, let alone understand we all do. If there's repentance needed, I'm going to repent. Sometimes I even have to repent of my unforgiveness. I mean, I've had it where I've had to go to people after months of grumpiness 
and say, I know that our relationship is broken and I'm the main problem. I mean, you, you may have offended me, but actually it's my attitude that's caused the most pain. I'm really, really sorry. And so we come honoring the way, you know, who they are, God's plan and purpose for them. And, and we prepare to the best of our ability to deal with junk in our own lives. I'll tell you one trick. Now, doing this, you, you deal with your own stuff at a rapid rate. That's why most of us try and check out of this because we'd rather blame other people than get honest about ways in which we have been part of the problem. Now, others of us are different. We'd rather just blame ourselves and avoid the confrontation. Jesus says, walk both sides. Can I bring a different spirit into this? What do we learn out of this? Don't ask someone to repent if you have no intention of forgiving. Okay. You'll bring judgment on yourself. This is more millstone stuff. Like, like if you asking someone to have a change of heart. You know, there's a massive difference between just stop it, okay, and have forgiveness. They're from two different universes. Now, forgiveness aims for the person to stop doing it. But if you're calling someone to repent, just stop it. If you don't intend to open your heart and forgive them and work towards reconciliation, be so very, very careful. Lots of us have people demand that we stop doing stuff and that we change. How many of us have people who are longing to be fully reconciled in a loving relationship with God? Those two very different. So when I come with a heart of forgiveness and I've prepared myself, remember we're talking literally about just getting ready to have the conversation and I've walked this road, now I'm not yet at step number six, but I've, I've gone through, I've tried to identify, deal with the lies, deal with the hurt, deal with the emotions and I'm working through this stuff. I come with a heart of forgiveness. The confrontation itself is evidence of love. The very thing you're afraid of is evidence that you care. So, some practical do's and don'ts. Like once Jesus says if your brother or sister sins against you, go point out their fault or show them the problem just between you. So one of the do's is go in person. Next one is go in private. Like this is, yeah. And by the way, Jesus was very aligned to the rabbinic teachings of his day in this point. You know, Jesus often, the rabbis, they drawing on Deuteronomy, they, they had this. You start in person. You never take it public. You never use other people 
like, you know, give full moment to your confrontation. Our most popular strategy is if your brother sins against you, tell everybody else. So everyone, especially your mutual friends, will take your side and think badly of the other person. Bad strategy. You know, if you do that, it's a bit like World War I trench warfare that crazy enough is happening in the Ukraine where you dig your trenches and then you use poison gas. If you're telling other people, you might as well be digging your trenches and then you're just releasing poison you're not giving the, uh, the person who actually sinned the first chance to hear, the first chance to respond, we will be so careful. So how do we start? Here's some counsel. Number one, be honest. Like you, You're going to need to tell them. You know, whether it's before you even have the meeting or at the start of the meeting. They mustn't think that this is a lovely get-together and then halfway through the get-together, they find out that you're actually downloading a problem. Up front with them. Tell them this is a reconciliation confrontation. That's what Pastor Craig calls it. I really want reconciliation, but we have to confront something right now. And then... As you show them their faults, don't lay a charge. Don't make accusations. Tell your story. Tell your story. In other words, don't speak in the second person. You did this, you did that, then you, then that. How do you, how do you give this person an opportunity? This is different from your truth. I'm very weary of that whole ideology in our world today. There's no such thing as your truth and my truth, and they're completely different. There's truth. Or else we're joining Pilate when he said to Jesus, Ah, what's truth? It's not truth, it's experience, and it's perspective. Truth is bigger than all of us. But you tell them your story. So this is what happened to me. This is what I heard. And take the risk. And this is how it made me feel. So you don't go, you did this, you did that, and then bring a conclusion to it. Therefore you are judgment. And you burn them with a conclusion about their character before they've hardly even answered. That is not showing them their faults. That is judging. Jesus is saying, tell them your story. Help them hear what it was like to be here. And then see if you can awaken empathy for them by being vulnerable and disclosing your emotional state as a result of what happened. Is this helping anyone? These are just pastoral tips I'm giving you now. And then lastly, you say, 
And so this is what it feels like I need to forgive you for. But please, tell me your sin. Tell me your part of the story. And give me your response. And they may explain. And then it literally opens up into a space where you are not in control. I so badly want to control those temperatures. You don't know how much I am afraid to go into those conversations and not be in control. When you do it this way, you have no control. But you have lots of faith. You see, you don't want to be in control of the conversation. You want Jesus to be in the middle of the two. That's what you don't want control. You want freedom. You don't want to obey. You want to find agreement. You want to find each other. And as the person then begins to respond and tell you what it was like to be them in that, they may apologize. They may repent. Or they may tell you, I'm sorry you felt that way. <laughs> Or they may tell you you're wrong. You're not in control. But you are in a position of faith. Trusting Jesus for an outcome of the situation. I can't make you powerful over someone else in the name of Jesus. But I can make you powerful in heaven. When you agree with the Lord. test of this whole thing is were you willing to listen Jesus doesn't even I mean he, pro, he, he speaks to the alignment and the agreement but in the process the most important thing is whether you're literally just willing to listen if they will not listen take witnesses if they will not listen and by the way what, you know what's good for the goose is good for the end am, am I willing do I just want to go in and or am I going to let them speak as well? I have no control. But I have a heart full of love and a heart full of faith. Lay down the desire to control the outcome. Jesus does not promise in this passage he will succeed. What does he promise? He says there will be tremendous spiritual change in the process to experience it. You will see literally heaven line up and release on the earth all that he wants. Amen, amen. I tell you that in this place you will bind on earth and it will be bound in heaven. In this place you will loose and it will be loosed. You will agree and you'll get it. And you will gather and I will be there. In this place. Now the passage then goes on to talk about how many times should I forgive? And I'll leave you to read that whole long parable yourself. Matthew 18 is a study of 
kingdom chemistry in our relationships. But Jesus is wanting us to understand just how much is available to us.